Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg. Today we're talking with our guests about Russia's war against Ukraine. It's one year after the full-scale invasion began, a year ago today. Today's show is a bit different. We're going to be coming to you live from the Hamilton Luger School of Global and International Affairs on the Indiana University campus. We have, uh, we have three guests with us right now. We hope to have a fourth guest joining us later in the program. Daphna Rashank is a Ph.D. candidate in sociocultural anthropology with a minor in Russian and East European studies. She is joining us on the screen from her home in Kiev, where she has been since the war began. Irina Voloshina is with us also. She's originally from Ukraine. She's a Ph.D. student at the Department of Folklore and Ethnomusicology at IU. She has initiated efforts to protect a wide variety of cultural heritage documentation since Ukraine was invaded. And also Dr. Sarah Phillips is a professor of anthropology and the director of the Russian and East European Institute at Indiana University. Attempting to drive down from Chicago today is Alexander Svistun, who is consul of the Consulate General of Ukraine in Chicago. A consul is an official representative of the government who acts to assist and protect uh, citizens of his country who are living in another country. Those at home can reach us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can email us your questions also to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're not taking calls today because of our uh, unusual arrangement. But those in the audience today can also write your questions on index cards and give them to one of our producers, Nathan, who's standing in the back, and he will bring them to the front for us to answer. So I want to start by asking Sarah to talk a little bit about the background of this. We, we talk about um, this being the one-year uh, one mark for the full-scale invasion but it's really kind of a misnomer to say that this is when this conflict began. So could you give us the background? That's right. Thank you, Bob. And I first of all want to thank WFIU, and I want to thank Noon Edition and the Hamilton Luger School for shining a spotlight on this really important topic today. It's true that as we commemorate February 24th, to a large extent, we're commemorating and, and thinking about and, and grieving uh, the beginning of the full-scale invasion that Russia launched one year ago today. However, many people in this room know, and many of your listeners know, that yet Russia has been um, an aggressor against Ukraine for years now. Um, things really escalated in 2014 after the revolution of dignity happened in Ukraine and uh, Putin annexed Crimea in February 2014, um, sent in the now notorious little green men uh, to do that work, and uh, subsequently stirred up lots of disrest and um, unrest and, and sent um, soldiers into the eastern part of Ukraine, the Donbass region, um, to basically capture uh, and fight for parts of Donetsk region and Luhansk region. Um, and so Ukraine has been at war uh, since 2014. Um, and uh, one year ago today, there was a full-scale unprovoked escalation of what already was a very serious um, armed conflict. I want to turn to Daphne next and ask you about uh, about your life in Kiev. Um, 
woke up in Kiev this morning. You're coming to us from Kiev. What's it like there one year after this full-scale invasion began? Yeah, um, it's actually interesting that I woke up this night at exactly 4 a.m. when um, the war started uh, exactly one year ago. And it was a very... Um, a very tense feeling for me because the first thing that I did, I reached for my phone to actually check whether whether something is going on. And I was like, okay, um, are there any new developments? And only after making sure that there are no air raid alerts, like nothing um, out of um, super ordinary going on, so to say, I was um, I was able to go on to go back to sleep because we were expecting here in Kiev a lot to happen on this day. But like so far, the day has been unusually calm. I don't know. Maybe it's some kind of like calm before the storm. Um, we will see. But so far, so far, yeah, I, we I, didn't expect it to be that. That's called. I know the media in the U.S. was talking about uh, the potential for uh, air raids. So thankfully, they haven't occurred yet. So I want to ask uh, Irina to talk a little bit about what about the impact that a war like this has had on the cultural heritage sites. She's doing a lot of work uh, in that area. She has a, an amazing project trying to protect the culture of Ukraine and if you could just explain a little about that to start. Yes, um, absolutely. So um, I was in Bloomington a year ago and uh, like many people I was not sleeping anyway and uh, I received a message from my uh, colleagues in Ukraine, a, f a Facebook message, an invitation to a chat on Facebook Messenger where a group of my uh, colleagues and uh, friends in in folklore and ethnomusicology, they were um, hiding in the shelters, uh, trying to evacuate their families and, and loved ones. But also they were really uh, scared about their um, work that they have been doing for many years. Since the uh, demilitarization and denazification were two main uh, justifications for in invasion, my colleagues were really especially um, nervous about the denazification part because for Ukrainians, we all know what that means. Uh, Russia would try to just erase um, Ukrainian heritage identity or at least uh, try to do so. So um, they thought that um, Ukrainian culture would be a target, which it has been and it is. And they um, reached out to me uh, because I am aff affiliated with an institution out outside of Ukraine. They were looking for space or a way to evacuate their uh, archives of uh, fieldwork research that they have been doing for decades now. So I am lucky to be here at IU, and I immediately reached out to my uh, colleagues at American Folklore Society that is, is based at Indiana University, and they um, reacted just um, within hours, and they um, provided free and limited cloud space for our uh, colleagues to quickly and easily um, upload their archives to that cloud. Um, so that was just an, a, a quick and easy solution at the moment. We're still working with uh, people, with institutions to uh, think what else we can do, how else we can um, develop this project. Uh, as of now, we have about six, 60 um, institutions and individuals who up uploaded their archives and, and counting. And um, yeah, so this is an, an ongoing project. And uh, yeah, so that's been one thing I've, I've been working on this can, year. Can I ask you about your family and, the, and your friends who are in Ukraine? Have, how have they been affected by the, the war? Yeah, so um, my, my, my family is in Khmelnytskyi, that's north, uh, I'm sorry, uh, western central part of Ukraine. Um, so it's been relatively, relatively uh, quiet there, although just last week we had a missile attack. So I'm, I'm, I'm saying relatively, like, meaning that's not an active um, war zone, but um, missile attacks are regular. And um, yeah, so my, um, 
my family was so uh, I have a sister and she has two kids and when the war started um, she was really worried about them uh, the school was not happening uh, it, it was you know like many f families including teachers evacuated the uh, their school that they um, were going to it became a center for refugees so uh, the school was not functioning and it was just so unclear and uncertain what was going to happen so we um, decided to try to bring the kids um, out of Ukraine to me. So uh, that was an effort to, 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 to bring them here. We worked for about a month to get them visas. The, the visas were rejected the first time we had to reapply. So now um, they, so last year in April, they arrived to Chicago and they've been going to school here in Bloomington. Um, they are still with me here. How so old are they? They are, so when they arrived, when the, they were 14 and 16, now they are a, a year older, so 15 and, and, and 17, my niece and nephew. All right. Dr. Sarah Phillips, uh, director of the Russian and East European Institute at IU, this has had to have had a major effect on the institute itself plus the students who are connected to the institute. Can you talk about that? Sure, sure. Um, it really has, Bob. I mean, it's been really gratifying to see the response of our colleagues here at IU. And um, the day the war began, um, colleagues reached out to me with wonderful ideas of how the Institute, well, I shouldn't say the war began, the full-scale invasion um, a year ago. Uh, colleagues immediately reached out to me with ideas. Um, let's have a teach-in which we did a three-day teach-in from morning to evening about Ukraine. About 25 different faculty members and, and graduate students contributed uh, to that teach-in. Um, let's have an online panel. Uh, we did. We had one of the first kind of um, scholarly panels. I think we actually were the first here at Indiana um, on the day that this full-scale invasion happened. Um, and uh, had over 600 uh, folks tune in to that, uh, that panel. Um, and so the response has been just, uh, just amazing. And I, one thing that I really want to point out is how sustained the response has been. Indiana University has not forgotten about Ukraine. It, the, the attention has not ebbed and flowed. Um, it has been a constant effort to support our colleagues uh, in Ukraine, and I can say a few more words maybe later on about how Indiana has stepped up to the plate and done that, but also to support the faculty members here at IU and the students here at IU who are from Ukraine and who are experiencing you know, the stress and the devastation every day and so I'm just very very grateful to all my colleagues and to the administration of the university who have kept Ukraine and um, the resilience of the Ukrainian people and thinking about how can we be supportive just front and center for the last 365 days. Before I introduce our new guests I want to ask you another question uh, Dr. Phillips about uh, I use connections to Ukraine. I know that uh, during the time that Ukraine was, after the Soviet Union broke up, Ukraine was becoming more of a, a democracy, and there were there were people from Indiana University who were helping on those projects. What kind of things were IU professors involved with? Yes, absolutely. Uh, just to give a few examples, our colleague Robert Kravchuk from the O'Neill School had a long-standing uh, program in Ukraine. Um, he's more better situated to talk about that program that I am, than I am. But in the 1990s, um, helping with all kinds of economic reforms, uh, economic uh, sort of pol you know policy making and progress in that regard. Um, our colleague who's, who's here today, uh, Dr. Russell Valentino, also spe spearheaded a project um, with IU's Media School, uh, with Kiev Mahila uh, Academy, which is um, basically one of the, 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 the most renowned Ukrainian universities, on government communications. They got a, a big grant from, um, from the, the State Department. Um, I had done a lot of uh, collaborating with my colleagues in the uh, School of Sociology at VN Karazin National University in Kharkiv. So we did have long-standing ties um, with these different uh, governmental institutions and institutions of higher education in Ukraine. And we were really, um, you know, 
gratified to be able to, to, to leverage those and expand those connections uh, after the full-scale invasion, and that really facilitated a lot of the work that we've been able to do. All right. Thank you. So we've been joined by Alexander Sfistun, who is uh, the consul of the Consulate General of Ukraine in Chicago. Could you just start by talking about your work? What, what, is, what does a consul do, and what have, what have you been doing in the last 365 days? Uh, good morning to everyone. Uh, maybe... Uh yeah, I'll start with the consul. What what is the consul? What is the consulate? What are we doing here? What are, what are actually we? What are we and what is our mission? Uh, first of all, maybe everyone knows from the TV, internet, was it, what is a diplomatic mission? That's a representative of of one country in a different country. But there are uh, some kinds, different kinds of uh, and levels of uh, representatives. So there are embassies, there are consulates. Embassy is everything and anything what you know about the diplomats, anything and everything you know about the politics, uh, all the kinds of ties, relations, economic development, political relations, everything. Uh, the consulate is a bit smaller uh, structure because uh, we are mostly concentrated on the people and human beings, all the Ukrainians staying in USA, uh, all the U.S. citizens who are going to Ukraine, any humanitarian aspects, any problems of Ukrainians here in USA, in our consular district. We are uh, representing Ukraine, uh, I mean the Consulate General of Chicago. Uh, in Chicago, we are represented in, in Midwest of uh, USA. That's our 11 states uh, area. And everything is connected with people passports, problems with documents, problems with uh, uh, accepting accommodation, anything. What, what happens to a person, uh, it can happen, uh, it, it's up to us. So once, uh, now just maybe to predict your next question, what, what, was, what happened when on the 24th of February? First couple of days, it was completely shocked for everyone, and there was a complete silence. And but you don't know, you can not even imagine what happened in 26, 27. We were, uh, we received thousands of calls per day. Uh, we received letters from anyone, everyone, and everyone. It was not only shock for Ukrainian community for all our Ukrainians who are staying in USA at the moment. It was a shock for all the citizens of US citizens. It was a shock for anyone, for, for other foreigners who are staying in Chicago, in Chicagoland, in, in USA around us. Uh, so what was the first interested? What, what happened, how it happened, and how we can help? There were three questions, only three questions. During a couple of months, uh, we were concentrating on on guide, uh, how to guide people, how to help Ukraine. There were lots of questions regarding the donations, regarding how to find maybe we can like we can provide an uh, accommodation if there will be refugees, people who will come to USA. We are ready to accept. We are ready to provide with job. We are ready to provide with everything and anything. That was that was uh, first couple of months, and we had to provide any information, any guidances. Uh, then it was there were lots of uh, NGO funds uh, uh, raised. There was lots of information in internet. There were launched some governmental websites, so now the people are aware of everything and that solve problem is already solved. Okay. Sounds like you're very busy those days, and yeah, I'm sure you still are. And we are still are. <laughs> Daphna, I want to uh, turn back to you and ask about um, sort of the attitudes on, on the ground in Kyiv at this point and how the Ukrainian people who are, are living there have viewed the support or lack of support from the West. 
Yeah, that's a very um, good question because the last year has has had its kind of like ups and flows um, in how uh, people in Ukraine have been thinking about the West, have been thinking about the the US, have been thinking about Europe, and uh, just. To start talking about that, I think we can mention about another tie between uh, Indiana and Ukraine that is kind of like an elephant in the room that Senator Richard Luger, right? Mm -hmm. And his role in uh, this, um, in the deal at, um, of force Ukraine to give up not only its nuclear weapons, but also its fighter jets, right? The fighter jets that Ukraine is now asking the West to provide it. So that now that has been uh, on the mind of uh, many Ukrainians in the last year that um, we have kind of given up um, a lot that the West was asking uh, from us in the 1990s and like, did we have anything in return? Um, and um, as uh, the uh, full-scale invasion happened in February and in early March, there was uh, there was a lot of anger. I will not lie to you. There was a lot of anger. There was a lot of disappointment and disillusionment uh, with the with, um, with the West, uh, precisely because of the slow response in terms of in terms of weapons. Uh, to Ukraine, I mean, like, um, I often joke that um, the year 2022, it will be the year when um, every Ukrainian, when asked by a foreigner, is there anything we can do for you? Uh, every Ukrainian answers to this question was like, yeah, we need ha heavy weaponry. And um, in uh, March, when um, Ukrainian army was fighting with in-laws and javelins, so, and, and stuff like that, uh, a lot of people in Ukraine, they were incredibly angry about like the slowness uh, of this response that um, a lot of the, uh, a lot of European countries, they were kind of, um, over, they were, they overestimated, uh, they overestimated Russia. They were kind of like also like caught in this trap. They were also thinking like, oh, why would we help Ukraine in a way if Kiev will fall in three days, right? We all remember this narrative of Kiev falling in three days. And I remember being in Kiev last year on February 24th, uh, hearing the um, air raid alarms, uh, constantly like checking on news and like reading Western media that will say that, oh, don't worry, Kiev will fall in three days. Um, unparalleled emotions, I can, I can tell you that. But um, honestly, I think that um, in the last few months, these... Um, this response, it has changed. And I mean, Joe Biden visited Ukraine, uh, visited Kyiv this Monday, right? And this was some kind of like, um, it was a, it um, elicited a very emotional response on the part of uh, many Ukrainians, uh, on the part of many Ukrainians, because it was like, oh yeah, like finally, thank you. We are kind of like a stakeholder in the conversation. And it was an, a very important symbolic gesture for us. And I think in the last like few months, um, when uh, Ukrainians started seeing that we are being taken seriously, that we are being really taken as a partner in this conversation, that we are not just like brushed off as, a, as some kind of like oh like we'll 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 talk to Russia and we'll tell you what to do right. Just like after seeing that we are also as a country we are being taken seriously the attitude to the West, it, it changed, it changed a lot. We have uh, several questions that have come in from our members of the audience right now. I should remind our, our listeners at home that we're doing Noon Edition live uh, from the Hamilton Luger School today, talking about the uh, invasion of Ukraine. The full-scale war began one year ago today, and we're talking with four great guests about that um, this morning on, or this afternoon on Noon Edition. Here's our first question that's come in. Um, and Daphne, I'm going to ask you to address this first, if you can, and the rest of you can address it as well. Um, can you speak about the prospects for a united Ukraine after this war comes to an end? There are supporters of Russia, it says, in the eastern part of the country. Will they have to leave or will there be a united Ukraine? Daphne? Yeah, um, so 
Um, I'll start my answer by saying that there is a united Ukraine. And these uh, Russian supporters in the eastern part of Ukraine, um, well, uh, this is more of a Russian myth than it is a reality. Uh, so just, um, I have um, I visited uh, Kramatorsk and Kostantinivka, and Kostantinivka, it's just a city that is, I don't know, like 15, 20 kilometers away from Bakhmut, and uh, you probably all know the city of Bakhmut, right? That's the city that uh, Russian troops have been trying to capture for the last, I don't know, like four months. To be honest, I've never seen so many Ukrainian flags um, anywhere as in Kramatorsk and Konstantinivka. I mean, Donbass, it's pretty clear on whose side it's on. And um, I think partly this misunderstanding about like Russian supporters in the East, it stems from this idea that people who speak Russian in Ukraine, they are kind of bound to vote for pro-Russian politicians. They are bound to have like pro-Russian views, which is not really the case because i mean speaking russian in ukrainian it's uh, it doesn't point to anything really but to the fact that the family of this person was russified some time ago mm -hmm. any of the rest of you want to uh, address that want me to move on i can okay. just quickly say that i i was uh, very interested last night tuning into the pbs news hour and there was uh, a ukrainian soldier who was being interviewed just outside bakhmut and he was speaking in russian speaking about how you know i'm not going to leave until the last man is standing and you know we're fighting for ukraine and he's saying that in the russian language so just to re reiterate what what daphne said there is a united ukraine okay and actually, can add something because uh, what is Ukraine is united. That's one hundred percent. What is Russia saying? That there is a huge support of Russian Federation in uh, Ukraine. There is huge support. There is uh, some some uh, some separations, uh, tensions in Ukraine, in West and Crimea. Uh, but they don't no, uh, don't mention that. The, what is the basis of these uh, talks and rumors? Uh, most of the Ukrainian uh, population, Ukrainian citizens in these regions, they do really speak uh, Russian language, and uh, more, it's more popular in these areas. But this, uh, they don't remind us that the Soviet Union, that was a country which was concentrated on, the, on uh, Russian language only. And national languages were not supported in the Soviet Union. So the people who were born in Soviet Union, 99% of them started learning the first their language was Russian language, not the national one. Uh, then all those res results of the so-called uh, referendums, uh, let's say so. In Bakhmut, that the center of the military operation, what is at the moment, the most dangerous pa uh, place in Ukraine, there are several thousands of civilians are still staying in Bakhmut. Some of them uh, don't have any place to go except the Bakhmut. Some of them say we have our house, we have our cat, we have our dog, we have something we cannot live without them and we cannot go anywhere. Some have some other reasons. We have aged father, our underaged daughter, and we cannot go without them. They are not flexible. So there are thousands of civilians still staying in the middle of, of the house of war. Same situation on occupied territories. The people who could not leave, who didn't have opportunity to leave, they had to stay on the territory. And they just cannot claim that we don't support Russia. It's actually it's dangerous for their life. Mm -hmm. okay. And the results, uh, that's one point. And the mm -hmm. second, 102% of Crimeans uh, supported the separation from Ukraine. As I know from the people of uh, people Ukrainians who were living and residing in Crimea on the time, uh, at the time of referendum, about 10 or 15% of people just visited the referendum. 
but the result was 102 percent. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. I would, I would just like to add mm -hmm. to that. So my aunt um, lived in, in, in Crimea mm -hmm. for many years, and uh, she stayed there when annexation happened for personal reasons, because mm -hmm. she could not leave, like many, many people could not leave. Uh, to be able to work there, she had to receive, to agree to receive Russian passport, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, but now with full-scale invasion, sh she evacuated because it, it was just impossible for her to see the military jets flying t towards uh, Ukraine, to see the war ships, Navy, right? So uh, she evacuated. Yeah, so like, uh, and, and I just remember those, um, in the first days of invasion, those fake TikTok videos that Russian mm -hmm. army um, soldiers were making as if people are greeting them with, with flowers and, and happy smiling. So yeah, so that's just, um, it's much more complicated than that. It, uh, Russian speaking Ukrainians doesn't equal that they support Russia. And, and, and people who stay under occupation doesn't mean that they're happy there, right? It, it's, it's much more nuanced. Okay. We have another question that uh, has come from Tim in our audience. The Ukrainian Catholic Orthodox churches have praised President Biden for his visit, but the American Catholic hierarchy has remained silent. So do we have a, any knowledge about why that would be or any... Thoughts about why that would be? No. Nope. No. no Sorry. A bunch of people shaking their heads, so no. Um, here's another question. Uh, I don't know if you're going to know the answer to this one either, but do what will it take to end the war? Is there any negotiation um, that you, any of you would be aware of uh, that people might be talking about that would in the war, or is it just going to be, you know, just go on? Anybody have a... Well, mm, what's the official position? We, we have nothing to talk right, about right. until the territory of Ukraine is under occupation. Right. So if they agree to leave, that's, one, that's a matter for any negotiations, okay. but they don't. So if they agree to leave, that's, the, so that's mm. what would happen. Arena. So I'll briefly yeah, add that, if I may, it just, um, we know that for Russia, it's a matter of their um, imperial ambition, right? So they probably won't leave. They probably won't settle for anything, I don't know, like less than occupation of some territory of Ukraine. And that's a non-starter for Ukrainians, right? Because we have been, we, we have seen what uh, the public opinion is, right? And the public opinion is pretty steady in all the polls that for Ukrainians think that we have to fight until all of the territory of Ukraine is deoccupied and until we return to our internationally recognized borders of 1991, that is including Crimea, including the Netsk and Luhansk region. So the war will end when, uh, one of the uh, sides loses and let's hope that that side is russia okay. i would just add that the war will not end when if ukraine loses i th mm -hmm. I, th I think that that would not be the end of the war on 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 part of many ukrainians mm -hmm. i'm sure that that will not happen but mm -hmm. we've we've been through that right for s centuries russia uh, russian empire or soviet union have occupied Ukraine and here we are again, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I'm, I'm just saying that, yeah, I, I agree with you, Daphna, but also that would be a, a temporary um, situation if, uh, if that happens. Okay. I want to go back to, to Dr. Phillips about the, uh, the program that, that the university has with uh, non-resident scholars, because I think that's another really interesting part of what IU is doing. Sure, thank you, Bob. Uh, so yes, soon after the full-scale invasion, um, a group of colleagues were talking about how can we best support 
our academic colleagues in Ukraine, um, particularly those who are unable to leave. Uh, you know, Irina had some very poignant points about some people, you know, for professional reasons, for personal reasons, for legal reasons, which describes the situation of men of conscription age, right? They, they cannot leave the country. And so we wanted to uh, establish a program of support for academics who are still living in Ukraine that would allow them uh, to receive a stipend from IU and that would allow them access to the resources, the, the vast resources of the IU libraries and also let them be in touch and start working with and collaborating with faculty members at Indiana University. So we consulted with our colleagues in Ukraine and, and some who had um, had to leave about what kind of program would be most um, helpful, most supportive. And uh, to date, we've been able to support 33 colleagues in Ukraine. Um, the bulk of the funding, uh, original seed funding, came from the Office of the Provost and the Office of the Vice President for International Affairs was very helpful, Hannah, Bu Hannah Buxbaum. Um, but other schools and departments pitched in as well. And so as soon as our colleagues at the Kelly School, at the Law School, at the School of Education, uh, and several others heard that there was this program wherein they could support, you know, the research, the teaching, and the, the academic mission of our colleagues in Ukraine, um, folks came on board. So it's, it's been a wonderful program. Uh, we have monthly research seminars where the, the fellows in Ukraine present about their research. They get feedback. It's all virtual, of course. Um, and uh, we, we hope to find ways to continue this program. The original program uh, is conceptualized through August of 2023, but we would love to be able to extend this and extend the support. And, and I can't re reiterate enough what a wonderful experience it's been for us at IU to learn about the amazing research of our colleagues, you know, in the humanities, in political science, in various disciplines, um, some of their research you know, is very much focused on the war and the here and now and trying to understand what's happening. But we have lots of historians. We have folks who are, um, you know, scholars of literature, gender studies, uh, who have wide-ranging research that has, has really taught us at IU a lot. I want to remind everyone uh, in the studio audience and our listeners, we only have about 15 minutes to go in the show. It goes very fast when we're talking about topics like this. That was Dr. Sarah Phillips, the director of the Russian and East European Institute at IU. Uh, Daphna Rashuk is uh, on the screen. She is joining us from Kiev. Uh, we also have uh, Irina Voloshina, who is a PhD student, and she's been involved with the cultural heritage and saving cultural, the cultural documentation. And also uh, Alexander Sfistun, who is from the consulate in Chicago, are all with us. So we have 15 minutes to go. I want to make sure that we cover all the topics that you all want to cover. So I want to go back uh, quickly to Arena and just ask about, about your project and how, you know, how much more work you have to do. How, how quickly are you able to do this? And, and, and again, talk about the, the importance of saving the, these, this cultural documentation. Yes, absolutely. So, um, like I said, we started immediately on the day one. We allowed, we found a solution for our uh, colleagues in Ukraine to upload their archives. And um, we're talking about uh, major museums, research institutions, um, departments at the universities, nonprofit organizations, and individual researchers. So, like a wide range of um, of 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 heritage scholars in in Ukraine who um, who re, who needed our support to upload their archives um, to the cloud space. So now um, we have to understand that not again not all the people could do that because many people evacuated and left behind their laptops and uh, and and hard drives and other other things. Uh, some uh, people still, or at, at least at the beginning, did not have access to their offices, right? Or, or I, I don't know if any, um, if any offices or major archives were destroyed, but uh, that's still a danger. 
Um, so um, we are constantly in touch with with our colleagues. So me and an American folklore society and uh, the Society for Ethnomusicology as well. So we are in, in touch with our colleagues, asking them what else we can do, how else we can uh, support you on the ground. The problem is uh, bigger than just ev evacuating and uh, backing up the archives. Um, the, the thing is that uh, Ukrainian institutions did not receive enough funding uh, to create these archives and um, people had to s uh, store them on their uh, private uh, laptops, right? So, and now hopefully um, the war will be over soon and that would still be a, prob a, a, a problem, right? And um, a cultural sphere would probably not the, not the first priority of the government to invest in. Um, so we are thinking about the, um, uh, yeah, uh, and also another problem that our colleagues have is that not all of the archives are digitized. Uh, a lot of the m materials from field works from the 70s and 80s are, are still on analog um, uh, uh, materials. So we are thinking about the ways how we can uh, find this solution and, um, and get equipment for uh, digitization. Uh, send it to Ukraine, um, find people who would do that work because again, uh, there's not, not enough manpower on, on the ground for many, uh, many reasons. And uh, so that would be another important um, detail to this project. And also we are partnering with um, organizations in, in the US and in Canada with the Smithsonian Institution Center for Cultural Heritage and um, other uh, University of Alberta, uh, Harvard, to, to see um, how we can all collaborate on, on this project and, and make it a long-term uh, project rather than uh, you know, a, a quick solution. Mm -hmm. um, okay, yeah. thank you. Uh, I want to, uh, to acknowledge that we've gotten several questions about donations and how people can help. So. Uh, Alexander Council, I know that you work on the humanitarian side. What can individuals do to help with perhaps refugees or help with sending donations? Uh, we send in donations. Now we have uh, one main uh, website. It's a website dedicated special to donations to Ukraine. Different kind of donations can be done through internet, through online uh, banking tran uh, transactions. Uh, that's uh, three main spheres. Ukrainian army, Ukrainian refugees, and Ukrainian infrastructure. There are uh, certain uh, information about the, what we need, what the um, uh, priority number one, priority number two, priority number three. And an individual from all over the world can make a donation and choose the priority. He can make a donation or transaction, direct transaction. Then what the consulate is uh, coordinating the aid from, from USA, what's done inside of uh, the country. There are a couple of NGOs uh, in every state. Uh, Normally, they are based on the, uh, our communities, Ukrainian communities, uh, the activists uh, registered these um, uh, NGOs, and uh, funds, which are uh, assist, uh, assisting and uh, collecting all the uh, assistance can be provided by, by U.S. citizens, by U.S. government, by U.S. anyone, anyone staying in USA. And we, we transfer all the assistance to Ukraine. Definitely, what the what the priority number one? Mm -hmm. That's hospitals are destroyed. So any medical uh, equipment, any medical assistance. Uh, we already collected dozens of ambulance uh, buses, ambulance trucks, and transferred to Ukraine. Second, uh, we have to renew and maintain the our power plants and the electrical sphere because you know the couple of months all the power plants all the uh, electrical lines all the anything connected with the power electricity is under constant attacks from uh, Russian side uh, so we try to maintain all this uh, infrastructure 
at work and at work, work and at least work in uh, level okay. can say. so what we need we need generation generators we need some electrical specific uh, specific very specific um, supplies for power plants okay so everything that a person cannot do we okay. are looking for the companies for uh, for the companies who produce it who can supply it that that's something but from uh, the individual side it can be the donations donations okay sarah from in bloomington and Indiana, are there things that individuals, you would suggest individuals do to help? Sure, absolutely. So uh, on the uh, Institute, the Russian and East European Institute's website, we have an information page, and uh, a big section of that page is how to donate, how to help mm -hmm. Ukraine. So I encourage everyone to look there. Um, the Bloomington community is full of wonderful people who have had amazing fundraisers, you know, all this year. Uh, Arena has been a big part of this, our, our, our other colleagues here in Bloomington. Um, so folks, folks can reach out and would be happy to, to send um, information. Um, some big organizations that you might have heard of, uh, one is called Razom, R-A-Z-O-M, is a really... Um, wonderful organization to uh, to donate to, as well as Come Back Alive, the Come Back Alive Foundation, which provides a lot of defensive equipment uh, for Ukrainian uh, defenders. Um, I'll give a shout out to one of my <laughs> um, favorite organizations. It's an organization called Fight for Right, which is uh, headed by women with disabilities and their mission over the last year. Overall, their mission is to empower people with disabilities in Ukraine. But over the last year, they have been really at the forefront of the evacuation effort and the emergency assistance effort to people with disabilities. So Fight for Right is an organization I definitely would support. Okay. Daphna, I want to talk to you a little bit about, in our last five minutes or so, I want, I want to make sure that we get a picture of, of what life has been like for you and how things have changed in the last year. If somebody had um, visited Kiev two years ago, what would it look like now compared to before this aggression began? Well, um, if you visit Kiev now, one of the first things that you'll probably notice is how dark the city looks like. Because uh, usually in winter, it would be just like full of decorations. There would be like a lot of lights, um, people constantly strolling. And like some of these things are still present. People are still like strolling there and back. There are still um, like small um, celebrations uh, being held. But this is all happening at the backdrop of war. Because you can see like people strolling um, in the middle of the anti-tank defenses, for instance, and uh, huge bags of sand um, in the background. So, uh, even though Kiev uh, kind of returned to its like quote unquote normal life, you can still see that something is something is really going on here. That this is not a city that is um, that is that is at peace. But just taking you taking you to another level and thinking about this last year and. Um, what has changed and how people have been thinking about it um, because um, today and especially yesterday people were like meditating a lot on so like what are your memories what is like the most what is the darkest thing that you remember from the last year what is the brightest thing that you remember from the last year and if I were to summarize like all these memories I would say that this last year it was it was a year of resolve it was a year when people learn how to survive against the odds and to keep fighting in spite of being weaker in many senses it was the year of learning how to be stubborn but also how to use this stubbornness to uh, to your advantage mm -hmm. irina in, in the last couple minutes we have how has this affected your life and how has it changed, you know, the way you are now compared to a year ago? Wow, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, so for many of us, the, the full-scale invasion um, made a mark at before and after, right? So um, we will not be the same again, ever. Um, I'll just say a few words about my work as, as a folklorist and ethnomusicologist. I've always n known how, how important my work is, but now it has become, you know, like the importance received like new, n new levels, right? Um, it's very, uh, how uh, politically Im important my work is, yeah. Um, it's it's very so being a Ukrainian, I guess I'm 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 thinking about it is a kind of a job <laughs> for me, right? Because um, I I really appreciate all the attention that we are receiving, all the support that we have, but also, you know, it it takes a lot of effort to be the face, the voice of of Ukrainian people here in in Bloomington, Indiana, and um, one of the ways. We can do it is with the Indiana Slavic Choir that uh, I started in 2000. Uh, what was it? 21 uh, in in the fall of 2021. And so we've been uh, invited um, to many events to sing Ukrainian songs, and just to um, to me it's just a way to show that Ukraine. Like I know that Ukraine is all over the news although not so much lately <laughs> and um to me it's just a way to um raise awareness of course but also to show that ukraine is not only about the war the destruction and and the misery that mm -hmm. uh, we see on the news there's so much more um depth uh, to ukraine to its its culture and and you know it's it's beautiful uh, so uh, we'll uh, just leave it there all right <laughs> we're gonna have to leave it there because we are out of time i want to i want to thank uh our four guests daphna arena uh sarah phillips and alexander thank you all for being here with us we had a whole bunch of people that helped us put this show on i want to specifically thank our uh producers pat bean and nathan moore and engineer mike pashkash who's up here at the table uh, for all of you for joining us today. Thanks for listening to Noon Edition. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, providing financial support to the community for 55 years, promoting healthier lives and the advancement of future health care in our region, working together for a healthier tomorrow. More at bloomhf.org. And from Estate and Downsizing Specialists, LLC, offering complete turnkey services for estate and downsizing clients, from initial consultation through home cleanout to final real estate and personal property sales. More at edsindiana.com. Support for WFIU comes from our sustainers and from IU School of Medicine Bloomington, exploring the molecular basis of cancer with undergraduate and graduate students on the Bloomington campus with funding from around the world.